My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. You know, there's a, a, a saying that describes what it's like to live as a church. And if you've been around the church a while, you've probably heard something like it. It starts, it starts like this. Where two or three gather together as my followers. You know how that ends? Any ideas? You got an idea? Okay. Is this what you had in mind? Now, what makes that funny, if you've been around church, is likely you do know of another way that saying ends. In fact, it's the, it, Jesus said it. It's captured in our Bible in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. You may be familiar with the saying, which goes like this. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. And basically, the premise of what I'm going to talk about today is the fact that these two statements, can and do, go together. Conflict is a part of of church. In fact, though we may use this statement in a variety of different ways, if you go and look at the context of it, it was Jesus teaching on how to live together and work through conflict. That's what he was teaching about. So it isn't, so sometimes we get the idea that if there's conflict going on, something's wrong. Really, conflict is just a normal part of church, and what makes it difficult is that we, as our inability to understand the conflict and work through inevitable conflict with Jesus. Now, some church conflict occurs around what we might call periphery matters. Things like style of music, order of worship, who gets what side at the church camp out, or even gets there first, right? Or, oh yeah, not that that would ever happen. But on periphery matters, what's important is that we learn how to agree to disagree, that we learn the fine art of compromise, and above all else, we learn how to maintain unity. On those matters. Now, other conflicts involve core elements of what makes Christianity Christianity. Things like the nature of God, the person of Jesus, the authority of the Bible, and how a person is reconciled to God. Now, resolving conflicts around those issues, those are some challenging ones, right? That requires intense prayer, patient humility, and an uncompromisingly clinging to both truth and and grace, and holding them together in tension, which is not something that's easy to do. Now, in addition to into those conflicts, I think every generation of Jesus' followers, every generation of the church has a, a bigger conflict, a significant conflict that they, are char- that they are charged to resolve based on what's going on in the culture around them. And, and, and that's part of the lo- being a part of the long story of the church that goes down through the ages. I could give a, a number of different examples, but I want to highlight a few that still affect who we are today. 
Maybe in your personal history with church, you've come across something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, we've, we've spoken it here before, and we as a church would ascribe to what it teaches. Well, that's a statement of belief that came out of an intense conflict in the church in A.D. 325. The conflict had to do with the nature of God and the deity of Jesus. In the 16th century, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. He was advocating primarily, there's a lot there, but primarily for salvation or being reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone in the person of Jesus. And that prompted a massive conflict in the church that, that broiled around for years and birthed what we now call the Protestant Reformation. In the late 19th century, science and and the Industrial Revolution had produced this idea of that science and the scientific method was the primary way we learn about the reality of the universe, which brought it into conflict with the authority of the Bible. And in the early 20th century, that led to what is often called the modernist fundamentalist divide in the church. You may not know it, but the Conservative Baptists of America, the Association of Churches that Sunrise belongs to, was birthed out of that. Now, in the early 21st century, there's a lot of conflict within and between churches around the, around the ideas of gender and sexuality because there's upheaval going around that, on that all around us in our culture. And that's leading to conflict that we as a church, that we as church leaders are called to get in the middle of and to figure it out. And, and sometimes that leads to all sorts of things. Like here, we highlight the United Methodists. You may have seen the recent headlines, and they're just the latest of groups of churches that are having a hard time working through this and have decided to split on it. Conflict, it's a part of church. No matter the scope of the conflict, it could be something small, it could be something worldwide, resolving it is challenging because it requires enduring difficult conversations with humility. As our differences, and we have differences in personality and preferences and passions, turn up the heat on the conflict. As our past hurts, which we all carry hurts, some, a lot of them have the church, name of the church written on them, and our present fears about what it means to be a church and what it's going to require of me, they, they, they get and cloud our, our, our interactions. And as sin taints So when conflict arises, we tend to respond in one of two ways. You may know them as fight or flight, right? We're either going to fight to win, which means I'm going to make this church the way I want to make it, or we're going to pack up and run and just go find another church because surely the next church won't have any conflict, right? Right. right. Sadly, many give up on church altogether. Many of them just deciding, ah, the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites, And just to help you with that one, you're right. The church is full of hypocrites. Me, number one. Me, number one. I know that because to be human is to be a hypocrite. We all say and do things differently. Can we just settle that one right now? But sadly, many people give up on church because of that. My friends, anytime we fight to win or give up and run, Jesus' church is weakened because... Gospel-infused conflict is the primary way a church gets stronger. Conflict is actually kind of like resistance training for an athlete. You do that in order to grow strength in the body. 
gospel-infused, Jesus-centered conflict can accomplish the same thing for a church. We can get stronger as we work through that. And we see that happening in the early days of the church. You know, back in, we're going through this story of the book of Acts where the church launches, right? It's getting going in the world and it starts in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was. And then it goes to Judea and Samaria. And now the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about it going to the ends of the earth. It's getting out. And some exciting things are going on. We're learning about how last couple of weeks about Barnabas and Paul's missionary journeys and how the Gentiles are responding. There's lots of fun stuff going on. And as we arrive at our text for today, which is Acts chapter 15, we see conflict enter into the story. And so we're going to walk through it. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. We'll also have them up here on the screen. So while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. So here we are in Antioch. This is where we've been the last few, few weeks, this wonderful church in Antioch. It's gospel-centered, it's disciple-making, it's multicultural, it's missionary-sending. It's a wonderful church. Now this week, the picture of that church is marred a bit because conflict enters a story. And notice it wasn't no small conflict either here, arguing vehemently. So let's see where the argument goes. It says, finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk, about the, talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. So this is where we get to see that this is larger than one church conflict. This is a church-wide conflict. In fact, read through your New Testament and you see this conflict all through it. And so in Antioch, they send Paul and Barnabas and a few others to Jerusalem. That's still the hub. That's where the church started. That's still kind of the center place where the leaders are. And so they want to go there and they want to help resolve it. Notice geographically, they're moving from Antioch, Assyria, you've seen some maps the last few weeks, down to Jerusalem, which means they're traveling through this land of Phoenicia and Samaria, and they're sharing their story. Hey, you wouldn't believe all the people that are putting their trust in Jesus, and everyone celebrates, because that's what we do, right? As a church, that's why we exist, to help people, lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So when somebody puts their trust in Jesus, man, we're going to, yeah, right? And when we hear a story of someone putting their trust in Jesus, we like, a lot of times, tears of joy. We love to see baptisms as people pledge and follow and with the first steps of obedience after putting their trust in Jesus. It's worth celebrating. And so they're celebrating here. It's when it gets down to the details where the trouble starts. I mean, think about it with baptism even. I mean, how do you really know somebody put their trust in Jesus? I mean, really? I mean, shouldn't there be some kind of change in behavior? I mean, shouldn't we see it, see evidence of faith before we baptize? Or when do we see that? And, and how much evidence? And how long should it take? And who gets to decide? So here in this story, we had some, some folks traveling from Jerusalem to Antioch to set them straight on a few things. Hey, if you want to be saved, you got to keep the laws of Moses, just like we've been doing all through the generations. That's the conflict. So now we get to see what they do with the conflict. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the conflict is also in Jerusalem. 
Now here we get a little more information about kind of who's behind this insistence. It's called the sect of the Pharisees. Now if you've read the Jesus stories, you know the Pharisees, right? Oftentimes they get a pretty much of a bad rap. This is what Pastor Taylor talked about a few weeks ago because they were often antagonists of Jesus. But as Pastor Taylor mentioned, there was nothing necessarily right or wrong about them. They were passionate about the holiness of God and about purity, the importance of purity in following God's ways. It's a really good thing to be passionate about. And so that even though oftentimes they were antagonists of Jesus, not all of them. In fact, some of them followed Jesus. You may know some of the names. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea in, in the Jesus stories, right? And so there's this group of them. They were still a part of the Pharisees. And yet they were also Jesus followers. Nothing wrong with being a Pharisee. Except that. When oftentimes their insistence on the holiness and purity mixed with the cultural practices of the time that had nothing to do with the work of Jesus. That's where it began to have problems. In other words, secondary matters became primary. And that's where conflict happens in a church. In the church of Jesus Christ, there's one thing that's primary, the gospel. The good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through whom we can have forgiveness of sins for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus and puts their trust in him. That's the gospel. That's primary. It's always primary. Everything else is secondary. Now, conflict happens when secondary things become primary. And that's what's going on in this story. When second things, when other aspects of church life, and we experience this too, like music style, church governance, any number of aspects of church life become primary, we have conflict. So what's next is we see who steps into the conflict in verse 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issues. The leader of the church take up the challenge to resolve the conflict because that's what good leaders do. In fact, what I call I call conflict resolution the ugly underbelly of leadership. Many, of, uh, many people, including me, are, you know, they're, we're first attracted to leadership by the things that go with the leadership, the things that look good from afar. You know, you got, the, you got these perks, you got power, you got benefits that go with being a leader. I want to be a leader. And then you get into leadership and you become rather disillusioned because you realize leadership basically is resolving a whole bunch of conflict. Yay. And leaders in the midst of conflict are called to make decisions. And that, my friends, is a noble, difficult task. Because as soon as you make a decision, you know that's going to affect the lives of everybody who's under your leadership. And you can also know that every time a leader makes a decision, they're going to disappoint some people. And some decisions are going to disappoint a lot of people. And yet leaders need to make decisions anyway. And that's what's going on here. In fact, there's one person in particular who stands up. That's this Peter, who we know is a leader. So, after the, so at the meeting, and after, don't read past this, a long discussion. You know when you read your Bibles, it's easy just to kind of like, blah, 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 blah. It seems like everything's happening at the same time. No, 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 right? A long discussion over difficult matters, passionate people getting together, Right? So then Peter stands up and addresses them as follows. And I just want to linger here for a moment because Peter's an important figure and there's a lot going on with Peter as we can know in the Acts story. Maybe you remember that, that Peter all the way, mostly through the first part of Acts, he's the leader of the church, right? In this story, right, in this point, he's not. 
James is the leader of the church. So Peter is more like what we might call a leader emeritus. He doesn't have the position of leadership, but his voice still carries a lot of weight. In fact, some scholars believe that Peter is no longer even living in Jerusalem. He's not a part of that church. He's been sent out as a missionary. He's traveling around helping the others in the outer parts of the world, you know, the outer places learn about Jesus. And which would mean he's traveled back to Jerusalem for this meeting because he understands the weight in it. And for good and for bad, he's a big part of it. So that's what he has to say. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles. So that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Good point there. We believe, and here's where he gets to what's primary, we believe that what we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. He knows what's primary there. Now, there's more going on here. So, so Peter, you remember back in Acts chapter 10. So basically in this, in this section here, he's relating what happened in Acts chapter 10 in his interaction with the Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. We talked about that a few weeks back. And he had what I call the cultural boom moment where he realized, oh, God shows no favoritism and no culture has a privileged claim on the gospel. But I think there's even more going on with Peter here. And I believe that because of what we see written in another letter in the New Testament. It's a letter written to the Galatians. And what we read there plays a big role in helping us understand what was going on with Peter when it comes to the Gentiles. And so I just want to jump over to that, to Galatians chapter 2, and see what that was about. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, I, and this is Paul writing, he says, I had to oppose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. Ooh, conflict. That was fighting words. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James, that's interesting, we'll come back to that, came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. It says, as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, even Peter was a hypocrite. Even Barnabas was a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to them, to Peter, in front of all the others, since you, a Jew, by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Ouch. Paul called Peter out as a hypocrite in front of the whole church because he changed the gospel message in order to please a small, loud faction in the church. And that's where a lot of leaders go astray. There's a faction of the church and they're loud and they maybe have a little bit of power. And so the leader, out of fear of losing their position, they give in to the faction. Happens all the time. Happened here. So basically what Paul is is saying Peter was doing was that he was was enjoying his new Gentile friends until these friends of James came, came, which Peter likely knew because, because he was part of that leadership back in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden he throws them under the bus to save his own skin. And Paul would have none of it, just like in Acts 15. He publicly rebukes Peter for changing the very nature of the gospel. You've got to keep what's primary, primary. Now, 
When you read the New Testament, you probably know that it's not, it doesn't go in chronological order. There's different letters and things like that. When we place the letters in the context, especially using the story of Acts, what we can know about this letter that Paul wrote to Peter that this describes all of this happened somewhere in the Acts storyline between Acts 12 and Acts 15. In other words, it happened prior to what we're seeing here. Think about that. Peter has been publicly rebuked on this topic. He's been challenged. He's been chastised. But his voice still carries a lot of weight in Jerusalem. So he stands up. Can you picture that? In front of the friends of James, in front of all these people. And he reaffirms the primary message of the gospel. It's more important than anything else, including, including these Jewish traditions. That's what's going on here. Now in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas now get their turn. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they get to tell their story. Notice the different approach, though. Back in, chat, in verse 2, arguing vehemently, right? Here, not so much. Tone and approach is so important to working out conflicts. Sometimes resolving conflict means speaking boldly, passionately, maybe even arguing vehemently. Sometimes it means not speaking at all. Sometimes it means simply just telling the story of what God has done, like they're doing right here. Tone matters. The other thing that matters here is this first phrase, another one of those ones that you can can read past so quickly. Everyone listened quietly. That's hard to do in the midst of a conflict, right? To listen and to listen to understand the other rather than listening to prove a point or to wait to prove your point, right? That's what's going on here. That's what's necessary in conflict. And then it's James's turn. Now, James is the overall leader of the church. That's why he speaks last. And his words carry the most weight in the conversation. But I would say not only because his positional authority, but also because evidence shows that he actually likely agreed with the sect of the Pharisees. That's why I wanted to highlight the friends of James. He was likely, his, his predisposition was more toward their position. He, he loved the Jewish traditions. He would want everybody to follow the Jewish traditions, which makes what happened next really interesting. It shows the quality of his leadership. When they finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. So he goes back to the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and he he shows that there's a storyline going on here. This isn't new to us. And so what happens next, he quotes the Old Testament book of Amos. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. This is descriptive of the work of Jesus. So that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. This is a part of the long storyline of God. So what James did was what all of us should do, especially when we're leaders. He searched the scriptures, not for what he wanted to hear, but what for the scriptures actually say even when it disagrees maybe with, our, with what we'd want, to see, want it to say. And so for him, he valued, he valued his Jewish heritage. He revered the laws of Moses, but he would not project those cultural preferences onto others 
even as a leader, because that would be making secondary things primary. So what we have here in Acts 15 is a picture of church leaders finding consensus. And notice how they used different sources of evidence, right? Peter, uh, you know, he went to his, God told me this. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they said, hey, look what we see God doing all around us. James goes to the scriptures and says, well, that's what the, what do the scriptures have to say? And they find consensus together. They find clear evidence together, which leads them to James communicating the final decision in verse 19. And so my judgment is what we should not, is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath to many generations. Now, does, something, does that strike odd to anybody here? Not only because it's talking about strangled animals and all that, but... But didn't we just talk about how secondary things don't become primary? And didn't we just talk about how it's the gospel only, the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus? And isn't now James adding some religious practices, especially Jewish religious practices, on top of it? Isn't, right? Does that strike you kind of odd? And here's where we have to distinguish between putting our faith in God and living by faith as part of God's family. This is about the difference between the, what the Bible writers call justification and sanctification. And without getting into all the nuances of those two words, I'd like us to think about it as the difference between a child being adopted into a family and then a child learning how to live as part of a loving family. Because a loving family operates differently than an orphanage. And the child does nothing deserve, doesn't do anything to deserve to be a part of the family, but gets to be a part of it. That's the, kind of the difference of what's going on here. What James is doing here is he's not adding religious practices to the gospel. He's, he's, his instructions are intended to help the church live out relationships between people of very different cultural backgrounds. In particular, this is about him helping them how they're going to have a meal together. Because eating together was and is a big part of church life, right? In fact, we learned that back in Acts chapter 2. With his instructions here, James is discipling them in how to share meals together as Jews and Gentiles in light of Jewish dietary restrictions. This is like us navigating a church potluck when we have among us some vegans, some vegetarians, some meditarians. We have those with various food allergies and sensitivities, right? It's a challenge. And we need to show and extend grace to one another. So James isn't adding laws and requirements to the gospel. He's coaching diverse people in how to live together in harmony because that's what good leaders do. Paul addressed the same topic in his letters to the Corinthians and to the Romans. And fascinatingly, what he says, what Paul says, differs from what James says because they are different leaders speaking to different churches in different cities with different cultural makeup, which necessitated different solutions to what they were going through. That's because their focus was not on keeping a list of rules. It was living in loving relationship. Focus isn't about keeping a specific list of rules, my friends. It's about living in loving relationship. James was asking the Gentile believers to show grace to Jewish believers when they ate together because they'd been living this way and they'd been carrying this message of the true God of the universe for generations. And it's kind of like, cut them some slack, will you? Right? It's kind of like that. Show some grace here. 
Now, the really attentive ones here today may be thinking, dietary restrictions? How is sexual immorality a dietary restriction? And to be frank, I really wanted to overlook that and hope you didn't notice. (laughs) My life would have been a lot easier that way, but leaders step into difficult things, so... What I want to simply say on that is sexuality is a challenge for every age in the church. Every age. We don't overcome this. Because you read through the Bible and you will see that sexuality is near and dear to the heart of God. It is a good gift from God meant for us to enjoy within the boundaries of his design and instruction. But because it tugs on our deepest cravings. It is usually the place we least want under the authority of God. Because sexuality was given as a gift to be enjoyed within the boundaries of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside of those boundaries within the community of Jesus, the family of God, affects the whole family. I'd say it's one of the biggest cultural lies of our day that what happens between consenting adults in the privacy of their own bedroom does not affect the culture at large. And I just want to say, that's simply not true. It uh, deeply affects the community. And so if that's going on within, the, within a community of Jesus followers, that's going to create division. It's going to create conflict, whether we can see it and understand it or not. And that is for every age in the church. And so James here is following Jesus' lead in urging them, urging everyone to keep sexuality within the bounds of God's design and instruction. Well, what comes next in the story in verses 22 through 31 is James communicating, you know, or the, the church communicating to the church in Antioch. They have the actual, the actual letter there, which I think is interesting. Notice when you read that, I'll invite you to read it on your own time. Notice their grace and truth. It is, it is very conciliatory in tone, and yet it does not compromise at all in the gospel. It, it's passionate and yet humble at the same time. And it communicates unity. That's the most important part among the church, among the leaders, and with the Holy Spirit. So to sum up, conflict. Conflict is a part of church. We may not like it. We certainly don't want to seek it, but it's going to come to us whether we like it or not. And gospel-infused conflict is the primary way the church grows stronger. So as we walk away from this story, what I'd want for every one of us is to see conflict differently. When we find ourselves in a conflict in the church, and we will, whether it's with another person, or maybe you disagree with a decision of a leader, or whatever the conflict is, what I would hope is that we would look at the example of Acts 15, that we would speak passionately, yet humbly, that we would listen to understand rather than listen to prove a point, and that we would refuse, refuse, refuse to run away or fight to win. Now, the point of disagreement in this story was circumcision and keeping uh, how to respond to Jewish cultural practices. Not exactly something that's on the top of our list of things that we fight about. But as I mentioned earlier, I believe that the I believe that the presiding issue of our day is around gender and sexuality. And I would add to that the nature of love. What does it mean to love? Last May and June, Pastor James and I taught a series called Identity Theft that had directly addressed how we as church leaders are approaching this challenging topic, seeking to have both grace and truth. 
Our model is the church leaders in Acts 15. So first and foremost, let's say it again. Questions around gender and sexuality or anything else, they're secondary. The gospel is always primary. That anyone can have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's undeserved. Anybody is welcome. All are welcome among us. Now, once we put our faith in Jesus, we become a part of the family of God, which means we need to learn as loved ones, those that are loved in in the family of God. And as with every good family, leaders have the goal and the responsibility to help raise spiritual infants up to spiritual, mature spiritual adulthood, which means... In regard to gender and sexuality, we need to help males grow to spiritual manhood. We need to help females grow to, spirit, to, to, to biblical womanhood. It means challenging each and every person to tame their sexual desires and keep them f- for a faithful expression within a covenant marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. The Bible gives us these ethical boundaries to help us experience the joy God has in mind for us. And it's not that any one of us has arrived either, but it's like we we need to understand what the target is. We need to understand what the boundaries are so we can get after more of of the joy God has for us. But we can easily go astray when we cling to cultural expressions of gender and sexuality. And in doing so, we can put burdens on those who are seeking to find hope in Jesus. So as a church, we may knowingly or unknowingly equate manhood with, say, being an out-front leader who is rugged and bold and physically strong and keeps their emotions in check. We may unknowingly or knowingly equate biblical femininity with being quiet and subservient and in the background and, and caring for kids or whatever the cultural expressions might be. They are cultural expressions. And when we interweave them with what God has to say, we can, easily, uh, we can easily, when people are among us that, that don't fit those stereotypes, they can get a sense that maybe Jesus and the church aren't right for them. Or perhaps the, cult, the church culture communicates that being married is the Christian ideal. Leaving those who are single feeling out of place. Maybe we communicate that because God designed sex for marriage, that any time a Christian man and a Christian woman are married, that sex is going to be wonderful. Leaving those who are struggling sexuality within marriage, again, feeling out of place. And, and I think this is the biggie, and we lose out in the ability to instruct those who are single in the wonder and the beauty of living sexually celibate. Not just because don't do that, that's not for you, but because you can take that sexual energy, it's, a, it's actually a force, and then align it to fidelity with Jesus and to the, his kingdom work. That's what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 7. Go read it. It's great to be single and, and to be fully devoted to, to the Jesus, to God who loves you. My friends, spiritual leadership it's a challenge. And, our spirit, and the leaders here at Sunrise, we recognize the challenge before us as a church when it comes to gender and sexuality. And if you have any questions about what I just said, I'd invite you to go listen to the, to the podcast on our website for the identity theft series we did last summer and to reach out and let's talk about it. And even if you passionately disagree with what I just said, let's talk about it. Let's work it out. That's what, that's what we do in conflict. And we will leave both of us stronger if we do so. But I want to close today just imagining what it might be like to be an Acts 15 kind of church. 
What if we resolved our conflicts like that? Imagine if we held on to the truth of Scripture and the grace of God. Imagine if we kept the welcome mat out to any and all who would want to know and find hope in the wonderful message that your sins can be forgiven through Jesus and you can enter into a relationship with God no matter who you are and no matter where you've come from. And by grace, by God's grace, may we overcome our own sin and brokenness and cultural differences and experience grace-filled love-motivated, truth-telling relationships as part of a diverse family of God. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I hope you do too. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this message. I'd I'd rather it not be about conflict. I'd rather, you know my heart, you know I'm just as easy to be one who runs away from conflict as anybody else. Thank you for your call. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you grow us stronger when we, by faith, enter into difficulties. And so I just pray for everyone here. Every one of us likely has some kind of conflict in our heart. Maybe it's with a spouse or a child, or maybe it's with somebody in our small group, or maybe it's somebody else in the church, or maybe with a leader, maybe even with me standing up here right now. Jesus, through your spirit, would you strengthen us, give us courage, help us to move toward the conflict not to fight to win, but to resolve it. And please give us strength that we wouldn't walk away, but that we'd find hope as we move in relationship toward one another, even when we're very different. By your strength and through your grace, believing in the name of Jesus, amen.